Good evening to everybody, those who are present right in this room, and all of our friends on Zoom. To the ones in this room, thank you for coming out in this weather. You get extra points. We're not used to this. And even though this precipitation is something that I learned to call rains of blessing when I was complaining to a taxi cab driver in Jerusalem one rainy night. He said, what are you talking about? This is Gishme Bracha. These are, this is blessed. So, so it is. We're still out of practice navigating the streets, so I really appreciate your coming here. Some of you came on days off and, and made a special effort. So first, I want to thank you, first and foremost, to the Spark Church's passionate, kind, and super capable pastors, Daniel Parrish and Kevin Nooner, for both, to both of you for all you've done, and also, of course, to Congregation Eitz Chaim, our hosts, for opening the building and hosting us tonight. There are folks who could not be here, like Ellen Bob, to whom we're grateful for the help, and everybody who worked on the program, including Ron Shipper of Congregation Eitz Chaim. Thank you for the help with Zoom and tech. So we're gathering as seven different faith-based organizations, a church, several synagogues, and interfaith groups, all committed to preventing our precious world from being destroyed by climate change. When I spoke with Pastor Danielle a few weeks ago, I shared my reaction when I hear the phrase, faith communities. I said to her, I don't know what this really means. I mean, faith? I know what it's intended to mean, but it leaves me short. Do I have faith in an all-powerful deity that rules the universe? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Does my faith match yours? Is faith the quality that unites us? Faith in what, specifically? So maybe for a working definition, we can look to each other and say, I have faith in you and in humankind to repair what needs to be repaired, to do what we are called upon to do as stewards of this one sacred home we share. I have faith that we can find answers only if we have the will and determination to act together. And Daniel asked me to share this with you as people of faith. And so thank you once again for coming to hear her tonight. Finally, before I introduce my dear friend and social justice activist extraordinaire, Rabbi Amy Eilberg, I ask everybody in the room and over there on Zoom in your rooms to picture the rainbows you saw in the sky this morning. And if you didn't, the ones that may be appearing in the next few days. For many Jews, our tradition suggests this is an occasion for a blessing that goes something like this. Blessed are you, Adonai, spirit of the universe, who remembers the covenant from the time of the great flood and is faithful to keeping the promise never again to destroy the world by water. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu Ruach HaOlam, Zocher Habrit, V'Ne'aman, Bevrito, V'Kayam, V'Ma'amaro. Rabbi Amy Eilberg will share Devar Torah with us, 
and we'll introduce Rabbi Chaim Korzynski of Eitz Chaim, who will introduce his dear colleague, Daniel Parrish. They're, they co-sponsor many programs together, and they work together all the time. Daniel will speak with us for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have a question and response segment following her presentation. So with that, I've, Amy, please. One of the things that faith communities, the phrase faith communities means to me, is that we ground our activism not only in our opinions, um, in what we read in the, in the news, even in uh, secular sources of information, which are, of course, incredibly important, especially on our issue. But in faith communities, we also reach deep into our religious traditions and into our hearts to discern how what we are doing is not only in response to the circumstances that are actually visible in our world, but also responsive to a higher, deeper call. So that's why um, we need to teach them sacred texts. Um, I'll be teaching from Jewish tradition another time. It could be some other um, tradition. And I there's so many um, beautiful uh, texts from the sacred canon um, of Jewish sacred literature um, that it could have, uh, about the earth, about love of the earth and responsibility for the earth. But these are the two short texts that um, kind of jumped off the screen and said, teach me tonight. So, okay. One is a midrash, and as many of you know, um, but just so everyone's on the same page, Midrash is a perhaps uniquely Jewish uh, genre of playing with text, of taking the kind of classical text, biblical text, and exploring it for deeper meaning, digging deep, asking questions about it, relating it to our own lives, sometimes turning it upside down and inside out. So this is a Midrash on uh, a verse in... Uh, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which says, uh, I'll read just a teensy bit of the Hebrew, et Elohim et asher ivto. The biblical verse says, look at God's work, for who can straighten what one has twisted It's not clear, actually, who the subject of that second clause is. Who can straighten what, if you mess something up, who's going to be able to repair it? And the word is tikkun for the Hebrew Hebrew speakers. Or maybe who can, if God threw a wrench into creation somehow because of our sins, um, if God has actually twisted things, do you think you're going to be able to come and repair it? So I'm seeing, seeing no. So the, the Midrashists, the post-biblical writer, says, when the Blessed Holy One created the first human, God took them and led them around all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to them, this is God talking, look at my works, how beautiful and praiseworthy they are. And all that I have created, Adam and Eve, it was for you that I created it. Pay attention 
that you do not corrupt and destroy my world. For if you corrupt it, there is no one to repair it after you. It's really famous and beloved text and very, um, very painful text. I mean, be interesting to know what's the personal theology of everyone in the room and everyone, everyone at home. Some of us may believe in a God who actually will kind of zoom in and is, is actively involved in the unfolding of our lives. Others of us may believe that the divine doesn't work quite in that way. But, but what, what it, if from the classic theology, which is where this is coming from, God is saying, if you mess it up, if you alter or destroy the beauty of all of these things that I've given to you, I will not come and save you. That's actually a very bold thing for the rabbis to say. You know, normally we pray to God for all kinds of things, for God to come and help us. But this Midrash is saying very boldly and very clearly, as if God was saying, I'm imagining God saying, if you destroy the beauty of creation, it'll be on you. Because I said from the very beginning that this is for you. When I created it and placed you there, this land, this earth is for you to work to serve, and to preserve. One more unrelated, um, I mean related, but separate little piece of text, and then I'll close. Also from a book of Midrash, Leviticus, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, um, he was actually talking about what happens if one member of the Jewish people sins. Is that just, oh, that guy over there is a screw-up? Or is there some implication for the, for the whole, for the collective? In response to that conversation, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, the matter is to be compared to people who were on a boat. And one of them took a drill and began to drill a hole beneath herself. Her companion said to her, what are you doing? She replied, what do you care I'm drilling underneath my own area. They said to her, I mean, equally absurdly, just to follow the logic, but the water will rise. Well, not absurd. Her her claim is absurd. And they said, but the water will rise and flood us all on this ship. As familiar as this midrash is to to many of us who work in climate in the Jewish um, context, it also is more challenging than it seems because we live in Western societies in the midst of a myth of the rugged individual. We get to do, we get to live our own lives, we get to make our own decisions, we get to live by our own convictions. No matter what, other, other people don't get to tell me what to do. And it's not just people who we might consider extremists, but that can be true of us to this Midrash says so clearly, do not think that what you do in your own life, in your own house, in your own car, with your own kitchen, with your own financial resources, do not for a minute think that this is just about you. This is about the collective. And again, looping back to the first one. And, and if you fail the collective, the collective will will sink. And so I think these are powerful words of 
um, of inspiration and exhortation um, for us and our work, and I'm so thrilled uh, to hear from Danielle tonight. Erev Tov, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> I'm Rabbi Chaim Korzynski, the rabbi here at Eitz Chaim, and it's a real pleasure uh, to, to welcome all of you here uh, this evening, those of you who are joining in person and those of you who are joining on Zoom. Uh, we're, we're all in this together. As Amy said, Rabbi Amy said, we're, 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 on this, we're in the same boat. And I think tonight is really about communities coming together uh, for the sake of the collective, and the question is, how can we as a collective find our voice? And how do we get people to, to listen? How do we listen to ourselves, first of all? And how, then how do we get others to listen uh, to make real sub- substantial change? Last night, I had the opportunity to, to learn uh, with my mentor and teacher, uh, Rabbi Arthur Green, who is the founder of uh, the rabbinical school that I went to in, <clears throat> in Boston, <clears throat> Hebrew College, the Hebrew College Rabbinical School. And when we were in rabbinical school, uh, Rabbi Green would, would speak about the ecological disaster that was already here, was already among us right when we were in rabbinical school, but I would say it was on the back burner. And... And now that I look back, you know, 15, 20 years later, uh, I really feel like he was prophetic in the sense that he was saying to us as, as faith leaders, this is the number one issue. And here we are tonight with it on the front burner. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce another prophet of our time. my friend and colleague, Danielle Parrish. First, a formal uh, introduction, and then a few informal words. For those of you who don't know, Danielle is the uh, co-founding lead pastor at Spark Church. She's been a pastor in the area of both small and large churches in the Bay Area since 1999. She holds an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary, She is a certified spiritual director. She's lived in Jerusalem, studied historical geography, rabbinic thought, and archaeology in the graduate program at Jerusalem University College. She's also the founder and tour leader of Come and Learn to Walk Israel In-Depth Study Tours and is published in Jerusalem Perspective. And on that note, I've actually... uh, participated, walked into a couple of her uh, educational uh, Israel activities that, she, that she's done here at Eitz Chaim, and, and she's also led several trips um, to Israel, uh, both with her congr- congregants and also with uh, Eitz Chaim, um, with Rabbi Ari Carton, and uh, I know that the participants in that, on those trips just come back saying, wow, Danielle is just, the amount of knowledge that she holds about Israel is really amazing. As I mentioned, she's done several um, programs uh, with Rabbi Ari Carton, our Rabbi Emeritus here at Eitz Chaim, and uh, I've had the pleasure to partner with her as well on, on many different issues, uh, including racial justice, immigration justice, 
And now I'm just thrilled that we have the opportunity to work on climate justice uh, together. I want to end with just uh, on, a, on a personal note that um, actually one of the last classes that, uh, that Pastor Danielle taught with uh, Rabbi Ari Carton uh, was on prophets, the prophets in our, in our, in our, in our traditions. And, and as I mentioned, I really do believe that, uh, that Danielle is one of our prophetic voices uh, of today and certainly in our community. We have a prophet in our midst. And so I'm incredibly eager to hear, Danielle, what you have to share about your experiences, your impressions of COP26, and especially eager to hear how we, as communities of faith, as Rabbi Arthur Green said, we, don't, we already know right, from our experience here in the United States that not everyone is going to listen to political leaders. But the power of faith leaders, of that voice, of those voices, I'm really eager to hear what you have to say tonight and how we can work together as Jewish communities and communities of, of other faiths working together to save, to protect our planet and ourselves. Danielle. <laughs> well, I think Rabbi Chaim has set me up here to be prophetic, so here we go. Um, first of all, I'd like to just say thank you uh, for the opportunity to come together and to be with you all um, here in the room and on the Zoom. I see a lot of friends on the Zoom as well, um, including friends from all the local congregations here, as well as I see school leaders from my daughter's school, and I see you smiling now, <laughs> and I'm so deeply grateful um, for all of you who are here. Um, I know that my mom up in Santa Rosa um, and my mother-in-law in Napa and their friends also may be joining us. So a warm welcome to all of you again here and, and far. I'm deeply humbled to be here. I'm humbled to be working with all of the organizations that have brought this together. And I'm going to share a little bit about how I came to this moment and also how I think um, I'm just grateful for the divine spark that has brought all of us to this moment because of the ways in which I believe uh, we, are, we are intended to be brought together um, for this time. So whatever you believe or don't believe about climate change, no matter who you trust or don't trust, scientists, politicians, religious folk, journalists, etc., you're welcome. All of that's welcome, and we're really glad you're here, and we just want to start to have a conversation. Okay, here's a picture of me in the blue zone at the COP, and we're going to talk about all of those crazy words um, and what that means. First, I'd like to say that I am a non-denominational pastor. I've worked in Presbyterian churches as well as Lutheran churches. And in both of those traditions, uh, clergy garb is a, like the clerical collar, is a bit more common. But in my present practice of Spark for the last nine years and a non-denominational church in East Palo Alto, Mountain View, prior to that for 12 years, it was not as common unless you were officiating a wedding or a funeral or trying to get some street cred when visiting somebody in a hospital. But now I, I wore this collar every day of the climate conference in Glasgow because I now wear it when I protest. And I wear it on street corners with Rabbi Chaim when we protest 
families being separated at the border and families being in cages. And I wear it um, on street corners when we protest systemic injustices with race. And, um, and that's a lot of the times when I find myself wearing it. But during the UN conference, I didn't really know how to show up at, to a UN conference with, without it. And the reason why is because they just didn't teach me this in seminary. They didn't teach me how to show up um, to a UN event that I felt like I had accidentally found myself at. But I know that I'm there because I want to protest the lack of care and concern and compassion that we have had for the global poor and marginalized who have been bearing the brunt of our sin of energy consumption that's not been just for decades. And I want to protest the fact that we are continuing those policies in spite of very lovely meetings at the UN every year. And I wanted to show up in protest of that power, and I also wanted to show up as a witness to those of us who are Christians to say we do care and we should care. And so that's why I have it on today and that's why I continue to wear it when, when working on issues of climate justice. Because ultimately, the issue of climate justice is the justice issue that is the umbrella issue over all of the issues that many of us so deeply care about. If we care about refugees, if we care about immigration issues, if we care about the crisis at the border, if we're concerned about war, then we have to be concerned about climate. Because the Syrian war started in large part as a result of drought. And so it's not enough to just be concerned when refugees fleeing that violence are washing up on the shores of Europe. And our consciousness is awakened. We have to be concerned before that moment. If we are concerned about systemic issues of racial injustice. If we're concerned about those who have been marginalized for generations, if we're concerned about First Nations and indigenous voices being centered in our midst, then we have to care about climate justice. Because for generations, those who are most marginalized and oppressed within our systems are the ones who are suffering the most as a result of this injustice. All of the things we care about come under this issue. And I'm deeply grateful for Rabbi Chaim because as as God is wont to do in my life in connection with the beautiful community of Eitz Chaim, somehow we find ourselves responding in similar moments, in similar ways. And while I was applying to be part of this program to attend the UN conference, unbeknownst to me, Rabbi Chaim was preaching his primary message for Yom Kippur on climate change and how it's the most important issue of our time. I'm just grateful that we've been sort of moving together and becoming more aware together on these issues. In my practice of my faith, um, the Gospels are part of the New Testament that tell the stories of this itinerant first century rabbi and mostly northern Israel and Galilee who walked around and taught some lovely, wonderful, and challenging things. And at one point in the Gospel of Mark, it records that he is asked by a scribe, what is the first commandment? What is the most important commandment? And Jesus responds, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is unlike, like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Ve'ahavta la'reacha k'mocha. 
Of course, these words are very familiar to all of you. And I'm honored to study from a rabbi who taught them to me. But the reason why I care about climate justice and the reason I was there is because this is the way I can best love my neighbor. My global neighbor and my neighbor right next door. And so I'm grateful for that. How did I get here? Well, I can tell you that in high school, in 1990, I organized, you know, a sit-out for teacher rights, and I had a Save the Planet t-shirt and Birkenstocks on while I did it. And I can tell you that I purchased this beautiful green Bible, which is very focused on, like, wonderful sages and wisdom about how we apply this text in a beautiful way. And I purchased this way back in 2008. And I can tell you that I've always had a connection, um, having grown up in Northern California, to redwoods and to trees and to waters and ocean. But I'll tell you the time when I really woke up and realized that this was not a far-off crisis that some scientists were warning us about, but this was a very existential crisis that was present was the night of October 8th to October 9th, 2017, the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa. So my daughter at the time, um, three years old, woke me up, and I put her back down to bed, and I glanced at my phone. It was about 3, 4 in the morning, about 3 in the morning, and it said, Fire Santa Rosa. My hometown is Santa Rosa. I've been there since I was 3, 4 years old, and I graduated high school with the same people I went to preschool with. It's kind of that kind of town. And my parents still live there, as well as lots of family friends. And as I started thinking, maybe I should pay more attention to this, um, images like this started showing up on my phone. This is the drive from my parents' neighborhood on the only road out um, to safety. And I started frantically trying to call and text my parents to tell them to get out. And the phones weren't working, and the cell towers were not working, and so there were moments where I, in my front room, just dropped to my knees and begged God to help. And so finally, my mom and I get a, a connection, and it's a little bit static. And I'm saying, you have to get out. You have to get out. I don't think it's safe. Even if it's not right there, I think you need to get out. Just, just get what you need and get out. And then I waited for hours. And for those of you who are familiar with like text exchanges, this is me trying to get hold of my dad. They took two cars, and I was frantically trying to find my friends and tell them to turn, like, pull over and turn it on so I can find you. And, and mom's here because they, they weren't together. And she's at the lucky parking lot, and I've located the fairgrounds, and they're taking cars. Just drop a car and be together. And, and there's a Presbyterian church on this corner. I'm sure they won't tow your car. Like, leave, leave a car there. Just please come. And this persists on a timestamp from 3 to 4 to 5 to 6. Um, and then my dad texts back around uh, 6, 7 in the morning, we've stopped for breakfast. Okay. And they got to my door around 9, 10 that morning. And then we started to see what had truly happened, which is that the fire came at hurricane strength and destroyed much of the town. My childhood friend, uh, the big brother of my best friend, Craig Schwartz was his name. He's the captain of the police. And he was interviewed that it was the most terrifying night of his life that he could not hear any longer the phone, the, the coming in of, of police officers being trapped, of people being trapped. We were just completely unprepared for this event. And 
as we watched these flames, and my parents then were under mandatory evacuation here at our home for three, four weeks, and we waited to see when it might be safe to return, stories of survival started coming out. Um, People who lost everything started writing down what had happened. And we started to rally. And you all rallied too. Many of us. It was the first time something like this had happened in our area. And we showed up. And even over Thanksgiving later on that month and in November, Rabbi Chaim and I were both in Santa Rosa at the same time, letting our kids play at the same park and both talking about how to help and support the communities that were present there. By the time of its containment on October 31st, it took nearly a month to contain the fire. It was estimated to have burned 36,000-plus acres. At least 22 people were believed to have been killed in Sonoma County alone. It destroyed more than 5,643 structures, half of which were homes in Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa's economic loss from the Tubbs fire was estimated at $1.2 billion, with 5% of the city's housing stock destroyed, and the Tubbs fire also incurred an additional cost of $100 million in fire suppression. And now you all know that, unfortunately, this was not a one-off event. And we now have a fifth season of our year that we often refer to as fire season. And I didn't grow up with that. So this was when I started waking up to this crisis. In fact, you should know that in the entire 20th century, there were only five fires that burned more than 100,000 acres. But in 2020, there were 11 such fires in one year. Climate change is not far off. It's present and it's here. And it's not just affecting those who've lost everything or who've experienced that trauma. And just again last year, my parents were evacuated again because the fires came again. It's affecting our children and the generations that are coming up. My daughter now asks, what's that orange dot in the sky? And I say, oh, that's the sun. We just can't see it right now because of the smoke. I've become an expert at following people on Twitter to find out if our family home still stands. I've become an expert at contacting local journalists through private message and asking them to please drive by the street and see if things are still there. I've become an expert at watching the night cameras to see if everything's there. And now when red flag warnings come, we just beg my parents to just please already in advance of that come down and stay which, thank God, is what they were doing when the last fires came last year. And again, people had to flee their neighborhood again. And you can know that in in my community, people are asking, how can God be so cruel? Stanford's study now finds that the wildfire smoke that our children are being exposed to every year has changed their DNA permanently that they are now going to be more prone to lung disease, heart disease, and cancers as a result of the exposure to this toxic smoke. You and I know that if you live in the Bay Area this last year or if we were taking care of a congregation this last year, we had to ask questions like, is it safe to meet because of COVID? Okay, so we'll meet outside. Oh, no, it's not safe to meet outside because the toxicity of the air is is not safe. And in my hometown, the water supply is not safe in many of the areas because of the toxicity that's gone into the ground as a result of the fires. So that's what led me to the Christian Climate Observers Program. Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist and also happens to be a Christian, and she's incredible. If you've not read her book, she talks about 
what's going on and how to have these hard conversations. She lives in Texas and has these hard conversations very successfully. And she's been on PBS and CNN and all of the things, and you can go and watch all of that. And we're going to try to see if we can bring her to have these conversations with us. But she tweeted in August, hey, by the way, if anybody is a Christian and you're interested in trying to take climate action, you should apply to this program. I was sitting around my dining room table with my friend Jason and my husband, and I said, hey, Kevin, this is amazing. Like, you should definitely apply for this. And he said, I, that's not what I do. I'm, I'm not going to be the extrovert at that event. And then I said to Jason, Jason, you should apply for this. And he said, I'm not going to apply for that. And I was like, well, somebody needs to apply for this. So I applied for it. And it was the day that the applications were due. The, the deadline was that day. I really, truly didn't quite know. I just filled out very quickly. Okay, we'll see if I get in. I got an interview with one of the people who was selecting the 40 or so of us that would get to go to the climate conference, providing the UN gave us, granted us observer status. And when he asked me why I wanted to go, I shared some of the story, but I also said, nobody's listening to me. And I just need somebody to listen to me because I'm really worried about this. I'm concerned about it. And I don't know how we're all walking around like it's not happening. (laughs) And I want to have this conversation. So that's what led me to being on an airplane with my family heading to Glasgow in my total shock, actually, and feeling very much unqualified to be there and that there were others that were much more qualified, but stepping into that next space of opportunity. And as I went on that airplane, it felt important for me to watch the plane fly over Santa Rosa and Napa and places that I've called home and say, this is why I'm going. So that's how I showed up in the blue zone of COP26. Now, the blue zone is the place where negotiations happen, and you have to have a particular badge uh, that is approved by the UN that allows you to go in and be an observer um, for an NGO in that space. So I got this badge. It had environmental evangelical network on it. I was not terribly familiar with the network, but I was glad that they let me go under the umbrella. I do want to say that right before I left, because this all happened very suddenly, I did try to convince Haim to come with me (laughs) when he almost was able to make it. And um, that was my only regret of the whole trip was that we didn't get to go sort of, you know, congregation and congregation together and stand there. So we instead orchestrated some really wonderful ways to stay in touch while I was there, which that was a gift to me to know that you were all there with us. Um, So in the blue zone, you have the opportunity to meet lots of people and go to a lot of different different things going on. One of the things that happened was um, I connected with this incredible young woman who's Scottish. She lives there in Glasgow, and her name is Laura Young. Um, She's a Christian environmentalist. She's an environmentalist and also connecting her faith through Christianity. And so we would have conversations, all of us together, trying to find one another in this crazy space, and was invited to get in on a COP daily through, like, Scottish BBC uh, podcast. And I was asked, why are you here, and why does faith play a role, and what are you doing, and why is it important? And I gave Eitzchaim a big shout-out, as well as Multi-Faith Voices of Peace and Justice, as well as Spark Church. So it was a great place of where you could have conversations and try to get people to listen. 
But I have my friend Laura then, she works for this organization also called Tear Fund, um, which is a justice organization that helps with res- uh, responses for, from a Christian perspective around the globe. Um, she gave us a tour of the Blue Zone, and I really couldn't do it any better, so I've brought that for you today, and we're going to watch that really quick. It's just about two minutes, and you can kind of get a glimpse as to how the UN works um, in this spot. Hi, I'm Jack. And I'm Laura. We're part of the Tear Fund team here at COP26. And we're going to show you a ride inside the Blue Zone at this climate summit. Here we are in the heart of the Blue Zone where all of the negotiations and conversations are happening and we're here under the globe in the action zone um, around us. People are having coalition meetings and different conversations or planning for events that are happening during the day. Inside the action zone there are lots of opportunities for us to interact with the media and that's been one of our core pieces of work while we've been at COP26 getting the messages of Tear Fund out there, out to the world, to help influence and push the demands that we have for climate justice. Here we are in the pavilions where lots of countries and organisations have stalls and exhibition space to highlight what they're doing and to host events and different meetings. One of the things we've been doing while here is meeting with different delegations and ministers to present the petitions of Christians from all around the world and to see whether they will join us in pushing for an end to fossil fuels or targets to keep us within 1.5 degrees of warming. We are at one end of the pavilions down where the delegation offices are and this is where teams from around the world come together to have negotiations and a lot of conversations around what we are trying to call for with climate justice. In these rooms we hope that there are really great progressive conversations coming around climate finance and emissions and it's an exciting part of the hub of COP26. Around the blue zone, you bump into climate scientists everywhere. This is Fernando. Fernando, where are you going? I am going to the IPCC's pavilion, Sciences Pavilion. I have a meet with another scientist of the of the challenges for the draft the IPCC's sixth assessment report during the COVID-19. Climate scientists are so important because they are the ones who help us push for the 1.5 degrees that we need to be sticking to. So, Fernando, enjoy your meeting. It was nice to bump into you. Thanks, Laura. We are outside the plenary rooms. These are the big rooms that you see on television where world leaders and negotiators and delegates meet together to discuss the big topics of the days. These are where we hear the big announcements from this conference and the insight into what is happening at this climate summit. Thank you so much for coming on this tour of COP26, the United Nations Climate Summit. We hope it's helped you get a bit of an inside scoop of how it works and what is here. Um, And do keep following along for action you can take after the summit. So all of those rooms that you saw as you walk on in and then see the general areas and then the negotiation areas and then the pavilions, we were able to go into all of those rooms uh, where press conferences were happening, to sit and listen, to meet people like Laura who are already there. The scientist she met, Fernando, was actually part of the, uh, the Christian Climate Observers Program a few years back. He's from Argentina and was very passionate about the issue. And because... 
the program brought him. He was able to meet with other scientists, and now he's one of the authors of the IPCC report. So the IPCC, got it all, report. So those are the kind of opportunities that happen when you're in the space. Um, And I think uh, I just wanted to share a few standout moments that happened for me in the space. Uh, The first one is the Global Climate March. Um, You probably saw a lot of this on the news. There were over 100,000 people at this march. Um, It was incredibly hopeful and joy-filled. And that just struck me so much that there is a that from people all over the world, some who are very much disproportionately being impacted by the results of climate change, by this crisis, all came and with passionate justice and prophetic voices gave their chance, gave their cries, but also gave hope that things would change. And it was incredibly energizing to be together. Um, I think what I also was deeply moved by were the prophetic calls to action through voices that are not often heard as well on our global stage. There was a greater effort uh, by the UN um, to try to center um, indigenous voices and to see those voices as knowledge keepers, knowledge holders of how to care for land, how to understand how land works. Uh, We heard a beautiful cry from the Samoan representative, Brianna Fruian, who said, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And we heard from the activists from the Amazon and from Kenya. We heard from the beautiful activist Vanessa Nakate, which you can pick up her book now, even at Kepler's, and it's fantastic, from Uganda. As she said, we are drowning in your promises. It is not enough any longer that you just come and say these good words and then leave and the climate continues to warm. And subsequent to that, she has continued to be an incredibly prophetic and bright voice as to what is happening in her country and in the country surrounding. The delegation from Kenya said this in the negotiation session we were in. We bleed when it rains, and we cry when it doesn't rain. 1.5 degrees Celsius is not a statistic. It's a matter of life and death. And we've seen that just this month. Just a few weeks ago, Kenya was experiencing the worst drought ever. And wildlife and human beings, human loss of life is massive. And now, of course, it started to rain. But when it rains, it's not normal rain and has caused massive destruction of livestock and life and crops through floods. These prophetic voices that continue to call out and center the crisis. Truthfully, honestly, I'm embarrassed it got me this crisis to get here. I wish I had been listening better longer. Your nod to your professor and mentor gave out prophetic cries long ago. Um, At the Marshall Islands... um, the climate envoy of Marshall Islands, Tina Stake, she said she was asked at the Climate Action Stakeholders press conference, which was an incredible press conference, and there's maybe 30 people there. And they were coming out to say, it's worse than we thought, we are not on track at all, and we're not going to get there with any of the current actions that are being taken. And so she was asked, do you think the COP is a failure? And her response was, it cannot be a failure. Because if it is a failure, my country will cease to exist. So it is unacceptable. 
that it would be a failure. We have to just keep working. The uh, head of the delegation of Tuvalu said, we are at the forefront of climate change. It is an existential threat now. It is not fiction. It is not projected to happen in the future. Tuvalu is literally sinking. This is, when we talk about what's the difference between one degree or 1.2 or 1.5, it is the difference of whether or not nations and cultures and language and people have a place to exist. And I don't think that we've done a very good job in the Western and developed world of demonstrating hospitality. So where are they going to go? I was also very moved by the multi-faith involvement that was happening prior to the COP, as well as during the COP itself. A month prior, Alok Sharma, who was the president of the COP in 26 in Glasgow in the UK, helped to organize a massive 40 different religious leaders from around the globe work with the Vatican. And I know, Rabbi Chaim, you read the statements as well, and we looked together at them. And together they had a multi-faith effort to try to say to the leaders at the COP, you have to do something. We have inherited a garden. Let us not leave our children a desert. The UN also put out, and this is free online, you could just find it, Faith for Earth, a call to action. And they talk about the special roles that that faith communities, congregations can have as a result of the land that we own, the buildings that we are in the influence that we have around the globe. And they have faith communities from all over the world come and participate in this. In the UK, actually, the conversation regarding climate change amongst many different faith communities feels light years ahead of us. They have an eco-synagogue movement. They have an eco-church movement. They have a Climate Sunday event. They had faith vigils while we were there, candlelight vigils. They have an eco-mosque event. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, who is a colleague of our amazing colleagues here, is part of the head and the leadership of all of that, going to parliament and saying, we have to do better. And we can start in a variety of ways, through our institutions, through our own individual lifestyles, through our households, through our businesses and our government. It was very hopeful to be part of that because it kind of felt like a foretaste of the feast to come that I, maybe perhaps we together can start to do some of this work here and improve our conversation. I went to a talk um, that was led by the All Africa Conference of Churches um, at at the UN Green Zone, which is open to the general public. And the title of the talk was The Welfare of the Earth is Our Welfare. And in this conversation, Reverend Dr. Mombeki was asked um, to speak a little bit to the role of COP and how the role of the COP works within the faith community in Africa. And he said, well, when we talk about faith, we're talking about how people live, how they take care of their children, how they take care of their home. It doesn't matter if they have faith or no faith, but when we talk about faith and culture in this, we're talking about where they buy their food, how they take care of their crops, how they take care of their farmers or their livestock. We're talking about things that matter in the ways in which people live. And the conversation about faith has to be front and foremost in this conversation about climate in order to achieve the changes we need to make. Also, he was coming into this conversation right after Greta in her youthful zeal said, this cop is just blah, blah, blah. And I understand the sentiment. I understand completely. But he said, it is not blah, blah, blah to me. 
This is the only place where I can go and be on the same stage as the world leaders. It is the only place where people will listen to the needs of my country and my community. And though it is imperfect, it is all we have. And if we didn't have it, we'd have to build it. So he said, I need this. My people need this. My country needs this. And it reminded me very much of the long and, and very persistent efforts for civil rights here in our nation. These, we can't just go to one, stand on the corner of El Camino at Town and Country, hold up a sign and say Black Lives Matter or you know, racial justice is, is important or whatever it is and expect then everything to change, right? If we learn anything from those like John Lewis and others who do that long walk to freedom, it's that some of these changes take decades. And I understand that youthful zeal and the impatience, and she's not wrong. Some of it's blah, 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 for sure. But I also wanted to center and listen to the voices of those who are on the front line of the climate crisis around the world who are saying, we need you to listen to us, and this is the only place where we can make this happen. So what good happened at the COP? Well... I'll let you know that in the UN pavilions, where you go through, all of the nations have their own pavilion, as well as different groups can say, we want to center and talk about Eden Project or farming issues. And we'll see even Qatar has a group, and Turkey has a booth, and Turkey has a booth, and Korea had a booth, and South Africa has a booth, um, and Saudi Arabia has a booth. But do you know for the last several years... Uh, the U.S. has not had a booth. After the, um, we had a significant credibility gap coming into this COP. The previous administration pulled us out of the Paris Agreement right away and then stopped sending delegations to the COP. And so as a result, we barely had a booth or a table or anything as the rest of the world was there for the last years up until COVID. So the credibility gap for the U.S. was deep, going in. So they handed out pins. America's all in. They had signs everywhere at their their two pavilions. The United States is back in the Paris Agreement, back at COP, ready to go all in on climate. Joe Biden's quote up here, we already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. We see it with our own eyes. We feel it. We know it in our bones, and it's time to act. And even though I could feel maybe upset and angry at some of the things that our nation is doing or not doing, it was good to see them back. And I'm grateful for that. And somebody did tell one of our delegates, um, bad things happen when you're not here. And though we're imperfect and we have a lot of work to do, it's still important that we go and that we're there. The only small delegation that was sent in the previous administration was a small delegation from the Clean Coal Initiative. And they stood there and tried to give a statement, a whole thing on clean coal, and everybody else at the UN stood up and walked out. So though we had a big credibility gap, it was good to be there. And John Kerry said, the definition of continued usage of fossil fuels is the definition of insanity. We now know what we know. So it was good to be there. Uh, Pete Buttigieg came and had a conversation with Catherine Hayhoe, who I mentioned as the author of the Saving Us book. And in that conversation, they talked about how issues of transportation are climate issues. Like when you start putting in mass transportation, you start dealing with a lot of climate issues that we're having there. And as they were there, and you can listen to their talk online on YouTube, they have about, I'd say, five to ten minutes where they talked about their faith. 
and how as people of faith, this is what drives them to the issues of climate because it's how they're going to love their neighbors. And afterwards, I got to meet her and take a selfie, so that was a highlight. Really fun. Also, a deep highlight for me personally was that I got to carry letters from Hausner students, from second grade Hausner students and middle schoolers who had written letters to Senator Kerry. Uh, the second grader here is letting Kerry know that they're going to have a, an environmental group meet at Mitchell Park on Saturday afternoon and they would like him to be the guest speaker. Um, so I think, I'm sure Kerry's penciled that in. Um, and the middle schoolers wrote heartbreaking letters about how they can't go out and play, but how they remember when they used to be able to. Now they can't play sports all times of year like they used to be able to do or how some of them did flee flames and had to stay in Petaluma and other places. So I carried these letters for a week, every day in my backpack, all around the climate summit because I could not figure out when I was going to get the opportunity in the midst of second week negotiations where things were very, very busy and flying back and forth and COVID protocols were making things difficult and meetings couldn't happen and all those things. By the way, just from a COVID protocols, you had a vax to get there, you had to wear your mask the whole time and you had to test every day before you could go in. Um, so the last day of the COP, I got a meeting with the climate advisor to John Kerry. His name's Jesse Young. He was, he's so good at his job that he was fired in the previous administration and then got hired back in. And he's from California. And he said, oh, California, I'm ready to get these letters. And he said, what do you want to tell me? And I'm like, I need you to, t- I need you to know that our kids are scared and that we need you to do it. We need you to work on this right now. Do all the things. And it was a gift to be able to carry those Hausner letters. And I honestly don't think I would have gotten the meeting had I not had the letters. So it's the kids that got me there. And I'm deeply grateful. And I emailed with him just today. um, Just to say, we're still here and we're still ready to work. Tell us what to do. He's like, I'm glad you're on the team. The surprise announcement by the U.S. and China was deeply hopeful that um, since last April, they've been working, even though China was not at the COP, they've been working on a joint Glasgow declaration and enhancing climate action for the 2020s. So that was deeply encouraging. Um, The U.S. also announced a global methane pledge, which, while it does not solve our carbon emissions, it will take out a lot of the acceleration that we're happening, and they've got over 100 countries to sign on to this. Also, incredibly so, and this was like the most packed out press conference that happened, was a new alliance called Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. It's been started by Denmark and Costa Rica, and they are saying that we will not pull out any additional fossil fuels, and we're going to start moving in this direction. They've gotten eight countries to sign on, and then California (laughs) is, uh, so way to go, our state we have signed on as an associate member of Beyond Oil and Gas. Now, that's not to say there's not a lot of work to do to make this achievable, but that was some good news while we were there. And lastly, just a few things that gave me some hope at the end. If you're looking for COP26 upside, somebody tweeted, so it's notable that no one's arguing about the science. No one is arguing about whether climate change is a crisis, and no one is arguing about whether we need to get to net zero emissions or not. The disagreements are all about precisely how we deliver. That's hopeful. Uh, Somebody else continued to say that this process is essential. It's the only place where vulnerable nations get to hold the powerful to account. And if it didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. And failures are down to obstructive governments, not the process itself. 
And this was one of my favorites. I went to Glasgow for COP and all I got was this lousy renewed sense of purpose and a deeper motivation to organize in my own community. So we are not alone. I got to meet a fellow climate activist from California who also had been talking. She is indigenous. She's from um, the Navajo Nation there. And that was really deeply wonderful to be able to be connecting with her. And when I came home, I got to meet a new friend that I'd like to introduce you to now. You see, one of the things that's kept me up at night for the last five years is that I cannot believe that we know what we know about the wildfire smoke for our kids. And yet I have every privilege of buying an air purifier and keeping my child indoors. But what about my neighbors? And what about my neighbors in East Palo Alto and in San Jose? and in the mobile home parks or in the RVs out here on El Camino. And so when I was there at the COP, I started trying to find someone in the area who was trying to respond for our communities that are most vulnerable locally here. And I found, I want to claim her as my new best friend, um, Violet Wolfsana. She (laughs) is amazing. She was one of the negotiators for Samoa years ago at the COP. And then moved here to the United States and now has started this beautiful, she's been doing climate work for a long time. And I'm just so excited to learn from her. She started a new group called Climate Resilient Communities that branched off on its own one year ago and is working to help um, East Palo Altans become ready for all of the climate events that are heading our way, whether it's sea level rise or heat waves or issues of clean air. And so I wanted to just give her a moment if you would just mind coming up and saying hi to us all and just tell us a little bit about your work because I'm very uh, grateful. She's going to come back and tell you lots more, but I just, come on up. I feel like I'm a tourist and she resides here. And so I wanted to say thank you for your work and thank you for letting us learn from you and just tell us a little short bit about what you're doing. Um, Well, hi everyone. Thank you. It's an honor. It's very very hard to follow you. <laughs> um, thank you very much for the warm welcome. Um, Danielle said to just to share a little bit, but um, just a short um, short mention of the work that we do. As Danielle have talked a lot, I mean, resonate a lot. I was a negotiator for a long time for Samoa, and also on behalf of small island states. I even worked with um, least developed countries, including African nations. Um, But to think about the COP and the meetings, to me, you know, I've been involved in this work for a long time. Um, I still see there has been no change because climate change is happening. Um, The commitments um, from countries is not enough. However, um, there are there's us, you know, we are doing something about it. We are willing to help our neighbors. We are willing to help um, our communities. The work that I do at Climate Resilient Communities, um, like I said, I've been involved a long time, and I've, been, and I've always known that climate change has been happening. Living in Samoa, being impacted by climate change and sea level rise, I started work to work on this since 1998. And so when I came here to the States, I found that people weren't talking about climate change. People are being impacted by climate change because climate change is already here. And I was very surprised that in 2005, when I migrated here, 
I realized then why it was so hard to negotiate with the lawyers from the United States dedication. Um, now we are here today, things like wildfire, flooding, are normal now here, but it's been like that for many countries over the past 10, 20 years. So the work that we are doing now in East Pauwato, Haven of Menlo Park, No Fair Oaks, and um, Redwood City, we serve communities that are the most disadvantaged communities here in our area and under-resourced communities to respond to climate change. There is a lot of need, a lot of need in the communities. Many families don't have air purifiers. Many families don't have cooling systems to respond to heat waves. Many families don't have furnaces to respond to extreme cold during winter. Um, so that's the kind of work that we do. We work directly with residents, low-income families, to identify their needs and help them access the services that they need to respond to climate change. And one other important thing I want to leave tonight is that we work in collaboration with a lot of partners. It's not just climate resilient communities. We work with the county, we work with cities, we work with other community-based organizations to serve our communities because not only one person can respond or deal with climate change. Climate change is here and we're going to need to work together uh, build regional um, collaboration, regional support to help not only ourselves, but also our neighbors who will be heavily impacted. So again, thank you very much for, uh, for the opportunity, Danielle. And um, it's, a, it's an honor to meet you all here tonight. Thank you for coming. Yay. Thank you, Violet. I'm looking forward to finding ways in which we can have a local impact immediately as a way to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, I'd like to leave us all with this. Um, everyone can be a climate activist. Catherine Hayhoe in her TED Talk says, all we have to do is talk about it. That's all we have to do is talk about what we're seeing in Kentucky, talk about what we're seeing in Kenya, talk about what we're seeing here at home, talk about what's happening to our neighbors um, in just in our own neighborhood right here. The climate crisis in 10 words is very simple. It's real, it's us, experts agree. It's bad, but there's hope. We have to have a discipline of hope. The discipline of hope means that we're not just sitting there thinking, I hope it works out okay. I hope it'll be all right. The discipline of hope goes back to what Nahama said at the very beginning, which is that we can have faith in one another. We can have faith in our communities to start to do some good. And it will make a difference for even one household that we help. Because that's one household that doesn't then have a public health crisis looming in front of them 20 to 30 years from now right? Nine million people are dying a year from air pollution. We can start to change systems of this, right? It is always going to be the most marginalized and disadvantaged because that's where they put the dumps and the freeways and the shipyards is in the communities that can't fight back. So I'm hopeful that all of us together can have this discipline of hope together. But I'd like to leave you the words with the words of a poet, and leader Wendell Berry, when hope is hard. He says this, when despair for the world grows in me, 
and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and in the great and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I hope our discipline of hope finds itself connected back to nature, to the creation we all share. So please keep talking about it. Keep listening and learning and reading. Let's center the voices that have been talking about this for decades. Let's make lifestyle changes and congregational changes. Let's invite communities to participate and let's keep dreaming and hoping and acting. And thank you because I complained at the beginning of my application process that no one was listening to me and you all are here. So thank you. I don't have much to complain about anymore. Now we're just going to have to start working. Sound good? Amen. Thank you so much. It all goes full circle. Um, it's us. It's us doing things together, not reinventing the wheel on our own, having Violet come and talk to groups of us, figuring out what we want to do together. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because there's so much to be done. There's an expression, tafasta maruba lo tafasta. If you grab on for too much, you don't grab on enough. So we're going to need to be strategic. We're new. Our groups, some groups, not, not Interfaith Power and Light and not Pika, but Dayeno at Befam, the Olamva Ed at Colomet, we're new. Um, if you think you're late to the game, some of us are even later. So we're going to need to help each other and hold each other's hands to move forward. Um, Kevin introduced me to, instead of Q&A, Q&R, questions and responses. So we have a couple of minutes now. Um, were there things on the chat? Uh, I don't know. Did, or do you, any of you here have questions that you'd like to ask Danielle? Thank you, Danielle. <laughs> well, as you know about me, I do care. But on this particular topic, on the one hand, I heard a climate scientist say what we do now might create a positive impact a thousand years from now. On the other hand, at the beginning of the pandemic, the skies were clear over Sao Paulo, Tokyo, New York. So there is the possibility that we've seen a result there. We just haven't followed up on it. But it's what Violet said. I think she said it, people are talking, but it's just it's a lot of talk. There are a lot of people starting to take action. But I haven't heard about where the action is going to impact something now versus we want it to be for our kids in the future. Or, or is there an answer to that? I'm wondering, actually, if Violet wants to speak to this as well, because she's been doing work in both of those directions, the long view of work as well as the immediate need. I think my short answer is you, you, we need to do it all. We don't need to do it all, but people, humanity needs to respond to all of those things. It's not enough to say, I hope we can electrify a home, but I'm sorry you don't have food on the table or you can't keep your family safe right now, right? There has to be a, 
a multi-pronged approach. And I think you're right, Nahama, right? It's it's also the other, um, it is not your obligation to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it, right? right. We have to find where we feel like we are uniquely or not uniquely, but passionately motivated or called or set apart to start to do something. And I think Catherine, Catherine Hayhoe's comment, like start talking about it because that does shift and move things. Yes. Um, this most recent bill has more climate um, provisions in it than any other bill that's been done before. And I think it's in large part to the national consciousness that's been raised and has been forced to respond because it's it's hit our shores, right? In, in a way that has been true for the global, for the globe, but not for us as much yet. So. The National Forest Foundation, this is a very small example, a teeny, teeny little example, a National Forest Foundation's um, for a donation of $1, will plant a sapling. And then they will put those saplings in strategic places in North America where forests have been burned down. Um, they look, they're looking for partners, individual groups and congregations and schools and whatever. Lil Lumba Ed decided we needed to do something that was tangible. And for Rosh Hashanah, for the new year, we decided we would join with JTree and became a partner on the website of the National Forest Foundation. And to date, we had, we had a goal of planting 5782 trees to correspond to the Jewish year. And to date, we planted 6,184 trees wonderful. in four months, five months. So we're going to up our goal. It's a little tiny thing, and it isn't going to benefit us. It will benefit our children and our grandchildren. Nevertheless, there are 30 facts about each what each sapling does and what forests do for the world in terms of cutting carbon emissions, but just much more than that, 30 facts that we can get from the National Forest Foundations. So on the one hand, we have to do the immediate things that Violet is looking at, providing families um, with the things that some of us are able to just purchase. If the, you know, when the air was horrible last summer and or two summers ago, mm -hmm. can remember, All you can go out and buy an air purifier, but not every family can. So that would be an immediate kind of a project, an immediate project to say, you know, let's find out what, community resilience looks like and let's work let's partner with that group to zero in on what, on something that's very specific and then there are much larger things and there's lobbying and there's just it's endless what we can do yeah yes please hi danielle hi. and everybody i'm gail slocum and um you know it's interesting because i have been working on climate for most of my career mm -hmm. and I really resonate with what you're saying about that we have a unique opportunity now because lots more people have woken up and are starting to listen. And I think what ends up happening for a lot of people is they think I can't solve the whole thing. So therefore I'm just going to give up. Mm -hmm. And what uh, Nahama has just been saying is um, if we can take steps, we can, we can do some things that wouldn't have happened before, that's good. 
And if we trust that other people are going to be taking their steps, it's kind of like we're part of a big patchwork quilt, right? Like the, the beautiful quilt that you have behind you. And, you know, we just have to trust that somehow, you know, God's hand or however you look at this is going to be involved with us that, you know, we, we will be empowered. But I guess my, my biggest question to you, Danielle, about the, the conference is um, one of our congregants is working hard on um, basically climate restoration, the idea of let's not get stuck playing small with getting, you know, we, we need to do things to adapt and deal with the impacts that are going to happen, like the air purifiers that we need and all the different things that we're going to need. But how do we really get ourselves to that 1.5 Celsius since we're off track and it is bad. And, it, you know, and his, it basically, some people call it drawdown, but the idea of technologies that can capture some of the carbon and use it in ways like as the basis for our cement instead of using very, very high carbon sources. Was there much discussion of, um, carbon capture and, and climate uh, restoration as part of the key solution to get us there faster? Um, I was not part of those conversations. I know I'm sure that there, those, there was a lot of high-tech folks that are there having some of those conversations. And a lot of people weren't there that are having those conversations all the time, mm -hmm. right? But Senator Kerry, in one of his... Uh, one of the closing remarks said, we should not be relying on technologies that are yet unproven. We absolutely right now for Marshall Islands, for Tuvalu, for everyone, we have to draw down immediately. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that honesty. And the, I think there's a tendency that I have to think, well, I just like to keep living the way that I'm living and not really address the fact that the way that I'm living is causing a lot of harm in the world. Um, and to the people that I'm supposed to be loving. So maybe I can find a technology that can prevent me from having to make painful shifts in my lifestyle. And I'm, I personally am moving more towards the painful shifts than waiting for somebody. I mean, if that happens, that's great. And it will assist us, but already we're in trouble. We already have too much carbon. And I don't know, you know actually, let me just say, my husband, Kevin, is the one that started having this conversation in very practical ways, even before the fires and led a talk at spark called the green new covenant instead of the new green deal mm -hmm. and has been talking about this and reading 35,000 books on it. And, um, <laughs> and I knew it was serious when he's not the one, the activist that's out on the corner, he went to a Fridays for future protest by himself. Yeah. in Palo Alto, I was like, wow, like now I better pay attention we have to, we have to, do. so he's been teaching me for a while. And I think you might actually have more to say that you've read on carbon technologies and things. Yeah. The short answer is carbon capture is not going to do it. And, um, but the problem, the problem is um, every possible solution is an additive to the solution. So carbon capture is going to be able to draw down maybe, you know, right now, anywhere between five and 10% of what's currently in the air, but the problem is we've actually increased. I mean, about 40% yeah. of the fossil fuels that we have used has come online since the year 2000. Mm. And we've known about climate change ever since 
uh, Eunice Foote in the late 1800s. And yet we've brought about 40%. So it, carbon capture is not the answer because, and in fact, here's the, here's the other side of the problem. Carbon capture, one of the reasons why it's been advanced is because it's the fossil fuel companies that are advancing it. Uh, they are uh, advancing solutions that seem to make a lot of sense in particular areas. For example, methane, carbon capture, carbon footprint was invented by British Petroleum. And these are, this is a whole other talk that we need to give later about how the public understanding of climate change has been radically altered by the fossil fuel companies. So. I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, the kind of climate resilience strategies I'm talking about are not the ones coming from the fossil fuel industry. We're talking about the ones that are coming from environmental and, and sort of VCs in, in, in Sand Hill Road that are trying to look at what are the technologies that can help us leap ahead that are real, right? And so I think we're agreeing actually that there's no, there's no one silver bullet, mm -hmm. there's silver buckshot. And so we've got to do what we do as individuals, as communities, but we also have to use our voices to support the things that could save us that, or, and our money, like our investments. You know, are we investing in companies that are part of the solution? So at, right. at any rate. Right, right. Yes, you're, we agree. We agree. You're absolutely right, Gail. There, there's something for everybody sitting in this room whether it's starting a book group and Kevin has read 35,000 books and he, <laughs> he can start us off on the 10 best books you can read about the climate. And why, why do we need to have the same book group in every community mm -hmm. that's a co-sponsor? We could have seven different books and, mm -hmm. say, and other people want to get together and talk about investment portfolios mm -hmm. and look at, you look at Stanford University, uh, to just name one, or, or look at a lot of the other, I mean, a group of law students got together. That, this I learned from you, I think, Gail, about uh, rating the top 100 law firms in the United States mm -hmm. in terms of their, um, their environmental consciousness and what they're doing about it. But they're, they're, there's something for everybody sitting here. You just have to decide what it is you want to do because you can't do everything. So what it is you want to do, I think I'm going to leave you with that fact. And I think um, we're going to thank Danielle again, thank everybody who's here, thank Kevin, and please everybody who is, you know, I, I don't know everybody who is a co-sponsor. I don't know if the PICA people are here or I know the Chronics um, were very instrumental in helping get Diana to be a co-sponsor and um, of course, Spark and uh, Arevut and uh, at Eitz Chaim and International Interfaith Power and Light. And who else am I forgetting? And you. Thank and, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Um, please stay for coffee and cookies.